0: Why are there so many versions of the Bible today? Is the King James the best and the most holy one? Some people seem to say that, King James only and nothing else is what you're supposed to read. And how did we get so many in the first place? And which one am I supposed to read? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pritt and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions and many more in our final lesson of our Truth and History series. And today we're going to be talking about how we got the English Bible And we're also going to talk briefly about all the translations that we have today and which one is the very best one for you to read. Here's our plan to do this. We're going to briefly review canonicity. Then we're going to talk about the history of how we got the English Bible. Plus, I'll give you a few notes about translations and some suggestions for application and which translation is really the very best one for you to read. But first, let's review how we got the books of the the Bible that are in the Bible. Now remember, canonicity, the books that we have in the Bible, the decisions that were made on them, it was not antiquity. It was not authenticity, it was not any religious community or the church overall that made the decision of what makes a book canonical or authoritative. Its authority, the authority of the Bible, is established by God and merely discovered by God's people. The church councils formalized the canon, but the canon was determined by God and it had been accepted by the people of God long before the councils took action on it. But there was a little problem for many people, and the problem is that the canon was in the original languages for a long time and Not everybody spoke Greek or Hebrew. Then they were early on translated into the Latin Vulgate, and that was great when the Roman Empire was thriving and many people spoke Latin, but as time went on, fewer and fewer people spoke Latin. Books were very expensive to reproduce because they all had to be hand copied, and even if they could have been widely produced at the time, most people couldn't read. Now, if you attended Mass regularly, especially in the early years of the church, the church services, you would hear the Bible read through each year in the liturgy, but as more and more people came into the church who did not speak latin again we had a real problem and this the latin mass actually is something that continuing in the church it still continues today but if you've ever been to a latin mass you can imagine how confusing it was if you spoke perhaps one of the early dialects of English or French or German or whatever, and that was the only way that you could hear God's Word. However, God always has his ways to get his information into people's hands, to get his Word out, and during many years of the Middle Ages, there were miracle plays, and there were were groups that acted out the Bible, and there were always preachers and teachers who shared it, so people were not totally without the Bible, but always it was a real dream, a real prayer that people would be able to read the Bible. Now let's go back to history and we'll look at how the English Bible came to be. Now God was at work all over the world in many places and in many languages. And I would imagine that someday in heaven we're going to hear some really exciting stories about how God's Word was translated into the many languages all over the world. But for right now, for this podcast, we're just going to focus on how the Bible came to be in the English language. Now let's start first, oddly enough, in the British Isles. They became Christian very early because of the ease of travel and because Rome was in charge of them. And there were scattered attempts to translate parts of the Bible. A man called the Venerable Bede, he was actually a a monk, he translated the Gospel of John into Old English in 735. But you probably would have had quite a bit of trouble reading it. Now, I'm going to read you John 3.16. I will absolutely butcher it, but um, I will also reprint it on Bible805.com so that you can see it. But this was one of the early and really interesting and exciting translations. Okay, here we go. This is one of the early Anglo-Saxon, you might say, proto-English translation. God lifode mid in erda swa, dat he said his antecedent sinu, dat nan ne forde de on hing getle act habe dat esse life. Well, a little. But of course, if that is a dialect that you spoke, it was very exciting to have even parts of God's Word in your language. Now remember, this didn't mean that people had their own Bibles. This meant, typically, that this was something then that the priest in their local church was able to read to them in a language that they understood. We're going to jump ahead now to the 1380s, and John Wycliffe, where of course the Wycliffe Bible translators have taken their name, he produced the first handwritten English language Bible. Though not all the translation was done by him alone. He had a group of preachers that he worked with. They were called the Lollards. They were itinerant preachers and they went around and they shared God's word with people. Many copies though of his translation were made and it was widespread. Now again we wouldn't be able to read it very well. Wycliffe's translation is again not yet in modern English. It's in middle English. Let me just read a few of the things to you. Now in the, but, at least it's a lot closer. You can even see by um, comparing the difference between it and with the Latin Vulgate. And again, I will have these printed out on the website, but let me read it to you. The, in the Latin Vulgate, Genesis 1-3 says, De deus fiat lux et facta ex lux." But when Wycliffe translated, it's much closer to what we can understand, where it says, And God said, List be mod, and List was mod. Okay, that's still a bit of a stretch for us, but that's because we don't speak Middle English. Now then, John 3.16, in Wycliffe's version, uh, went like this, For God so leod, so the world, that he gath his und begetten Son, that each man that believeth in him perisheth not, but high elever latin leaf. Very close to modern-day English, but again, the important thing is that he made this translation, many people copied it, and it went far and wide, and was one of the things that paved the way for the Reformation. Now, the next important event, and a lot of people are, are kind of confused on this, was, of course, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, and we know that he printed a Bible. But what a lot of people don't realize, they kind of think, oh, this was the first Bible, and that's really neat, and it was printed and all that, we forget it was Latin. Again, it was in Latin. And of course, this greatly helped the distribution of the Bible, it reduced the cost, and many churches had one that weren't able to have one before. Monks and the teachers and the traveling scholars, they were able to have one, but still you had to understand Latin. Well, what really changed it was, of course, the Reformation, and during the Reformation, there were many, just right from the start of the Reformation, Luther, of course, published his German translation of the New Testament in 1522, the Old Testament in 1534. The Bible was translated into Polish in 1563, the Spanish Bible was in 1569, there was a Czech Bible in 1549, and on and on, and so there was just this great proliferation of Bibles. But back to the English, a gentleman comes along in the early 1500s named William Tyndall, and he was actually the first one to print the New Testament in the English language. This was about the same time that Luther was doing his early translation. But this was not universally appreciated at all. He was persecuted, he was hunted down, he was finally, he was betrayed, and he was imprisoned, and then he was condemned to be burnt at the stake for doing his translation work, which was illegal at the time. When he was brought to the stake, he was actually strangled first, but before he was strangled, he he said extremely loudly and forcefully, uh, the reports tell us, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. God answered that prayer because his followers carried on his work, and in a very brief period of time, actually in 1535, the what was called the Great Bible, was the first authorized edition of the Bible in English. King Henry Eighth of England authorized the translation and allowed it to be read aloud in the churches. Now, one thing that was that's kind of interesting about the Great Bible and where it gets Its name. It was a big book. It was over 14 inches tall, and it was only supposed to be allowed to be in churches. So, as many churches as possible had this, but because a lot of people wanted it, because it was considered very precious, it was usually chained to the pulpit in the church. But it was a huge step forward. It was an English translation, and it was available to people. But the reformers, of course, didn't stop there. They kept working. And actually, 51 years prior to the King James Bible, which is what we're all familiar with, the Geneva Bible was translated. And this was a very distinctly Protestant version of the Bible. Miles Coverdale, John Fox, and William Whittingham, who happened to be the brother-in-law of John Calvin, worked on this Bible. Now, it was based on the work of Tyndale and Coverdale, but it was also the first English translation that actually went back to the Old Testament Um, in Hebrew for its translation. Now, it also was the first Bible that added numbered verses to the different chapters, so referencing specific passages for preaching or teaching would be much easier. In addition to that, the Geneva Bible had extensive marginal notes, references, commentary. It was really, in many ways, the first English study Bible, and it was very, very popular and widely used. John Knox, John Dunn, John Bunyan, Shakespeare, many, many people at the time quoted from the Geneva Bible. It was really the Bible of choice for over a hundred years, and it remained much more popular than the King James Version that I'll tell you about in a few minutes for a very long time. This is also the first Bible that was taken to America. It was the Bible of the Puritans and the Pilgrims, and you can still get a copy of it today, though most of them are facsimiles. You can you can get one, for example, on um, Amazon. You can get one, but because they're a Simile, they can be kind of hard to read. Some of the marginal notes are, are pretty tiny, but it's still a very, it's a fascinating and very well done study Bible. But it is a study Bible with a very distinct point of view, a Protestant point of view, a Reformation point of view. And not everybody was happy with it. And so the Anglican Church, as it looked at it more, did not, especially under uh, Queen Elizabeth I, did not really like it. So she had another translation made called the bishop's bible which really wasn't all that that popular but what happened then shortly thereafter is king james the first commissioned the first authorized version and sometimes we, we just say well it's the authorized version and we forget that what that means is it was authorized by king james and 47 scholars from the church of england They, by the king's authority, translated the Bible again. And the title page says, The Holy Bible, containing Old and New Testaments, newly translated out of the original tongues, with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. And also on the front page, it says, Pointed to be read in churches. And from there, translations multiplied and multiplied. There's nothing particularly sacred or special about the King James Version. In fact, if you look at history, it was more just a political translation than anything else. However, it happened to take place at a time when the English language was really quite beautiful, and we associate it with Shakespeare, for example, who was writing at the same time. And somehow we tend to associate that language with churchy and and really holy sounding things, but that really wasn't it at all in In many ways, if you look at it in a, again in a historical in the actual historical setting that it took place, it would be just like if some political party today didn't like the Bible translation of another political party, and so they wanted their own done. Now, having said that. I believe God is totally sovereign and in control of all of the processes that we've used to handle his word over the years. And the King James Version certainly is a version that many people have loved and read the Bible in. But please don't think it it is the best, the most holy, whatever. In fact, since then, uh, a lot can be said for some of the newer translations, because from the 1800s on, there was really an explosion of early manuscripts, that help scholars understand the original languages. All of the archaeology that I've talked about in previous lessons where they uncovered a lot of these ruins and a lot of these different things that verify what's in the Bible, they also came across many manuscripts where they were able to see how the original languages were used. They came across grammars. They came across dictionaries. They came across lots of things that have enabled scholars to really understand the precise meaning of words words. Also, too, needless to say, the way we use words in English changes over the years, and so new translations are very, very appropriate. Now, let me share a few of my thoughts on translations. This, these are my thoughts, my opinion only, but when I've really thought about this, I, let me, let me put it this way. Okay, here's the premises that I, I based my thoughts on. Number one, God created language. Number two, God is eternal. He can see the beginning to the end. He knew exactly what people would do with different languages, where they would be spoken, how they would be used, what their meanings would be. Number three, God values his word. So, he knew the language that he would choose for the original writing down of his word. But he also is a creator of all of the languages that have been used in the various translations. So the way I kind of look at it is that in many ways, unless something's just egregiously incorrect, but for the good translations, and there are many of them, not any one of them is a diminishment, is lesser or better than the other, but I look at them as facets of a jewel that enable us to understand more completely the thoughts of our God. No one translation, I don't think, captures it all. And if any of you have done this in your study, you know what I'm going to be talking about. And if you haven't, I really recommend it that when you read a passage, that you read the you read it in different translations so that you can see the different ways different translators have put together those words. And that always increases the depth of our understanding of God's words. So obviously the next question is and i promised i would tell you this at the start what is the best translation the answer is the one you read it really doesn't matter just read your bible whatever makes most sense to you Whatever you are comfortable with, if you're part of a church or a fellowship, it's always good to read in the translation that everyone uses together because it's easier to discuss it that way. But really, the best translation is the one that you read. Or, let me add, the one that you listen to. There is nothing wrong at all. And I find a lot of people today would rather listen to the Bible. You can do it on your mobile phone. You can do it on the web. You can actually listen to God's Word. And that is not a lesser way to take it in. Keep in mind that through almost all of church history, until very recently, this last podcast, this last little bit of this podcast that we've been talking about, that's how people took it in the content of the Bible. They listen to it. It's only in the most tiny speck of recent history that people have had available their own written version of the Bible. So whatever translation you use, again, the best one is the one that you read or listen to. Now, having said that, I do think there is a best way to take it in. And I've talked about this a lot, and then in this next year we're going to focus totally on it, and that is to read the Bible in chronological order. And this is so important. I'm going to be doing a couple of little podcasts after I finish this series really telling you why. But when you do it that way, you get God's entire message. You don't take passages out of context. You don't distort them. You don't apply them incorrectly. So that is coming next. Now a few final application thoughts. First of all, be thankful. So thankful for the Bible that you have. Christians throughout the centuries have dreamed of, prayed for, and given their lives for what we so often ignore and take for granted. And that's God's word in our native language, in a written form that each one of us can have. Now, in addition to our prayers of thanks, let's all follow the biblical encouragement of Colossians 3.16, where in the Living Bible Translation it says, Remember what Christ taught and let his words enrich your lives and make you wise. Teach them to each other and sing them out in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to the Lord with thankful hearts. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other material on www.bible805.com and please do sign up for the newsletter there if you haven't already. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.